Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And this morning we will be looking at verses 26 through 41. Acts 13, verses 26 through 41. Please consider the reading of God's word this morning. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he has served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. On this Thanksgiving weekend, we find ourselves in what we could easily say is the very heart of all our Thanksgiving. Because the theme of our passage is that which makes sense of everything in our lives. The theme of our passage is that which brings unity to all diversity. And by diversity, I mean the diversity which is common to human experience. The good, the bad, and the... Yes, notice I didn't point any fingers. (laughs) The highs and the lows, the joys and the sorrows, the expected and the unexpected, the certain and the changeable, the peace and the turmoil, the health and the illness, the gain and the loss. We go through everything. We go through it all. But at the end of the day, my friends, it doesn't matter who you are. We all need to make sense of it all. We all need an explanation as to how all of this movement of life holds together. And believe it or not, the Bible has an answer. In fact, it is a person. In Colossians 1.17, we hear these marvelous, astonishing words. In him, all things 
hold together. In him, all things hold together. I wish I could comprehend those words, but in my finitude, I just can't. The mystery embedded in those six words is beyond our feeble minds. What Christ is and what he has accomplished is something that not even angels can explain. They simply look on these things with utter amazement. Amazement. That's why when Jesus was a baby, the angels showed up not to explain what was going on. They simply showed up to say, glory to God in the highest. That's all they could say. And they stood there seeing the Son of God wrapped not only in human clothes, but in human flesh. God the Son wrapped in human flesh. They had nothing else to say but glory to God in the highest. So they praised and worshiped. Oh, my friend, I believe that part of the glory of eternity, part of the glory of eternity will be this, free from sin and free from corruption. Our minds will finally be able to see one day, like never before, that Jesus, God in the flesh, crucified and risen from the dead, is the one in whom everything, everything does hold together. And just one glimpse of his beauty, just one glimpse of his glory will lead us to the most definitive conclusion of all. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. Going through life with all its pains and all its victories and strategies and successes and certainties and confusions, it was all, it was all worth it for just a glimpse of Christ Jesus the Lord. Why? Because when we see him, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. At that moment, faith and hope will be done away with because in our bodies, with our own eyes, we will see the Lord in all his glory. Faith and hope will no longer be needed because we will have him. We will have him. But in the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, we continue to look to him with faith and hope. And we do so by considering the written testimony that he has given us. And this morning, it is found in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 41, which we just read. Last week, we began to look at this chapter, which contains... Paul's words of encouragement to those worshiping in a Jewish synagogue located in Antioch of Pisidia, all of which is taking place during Paul's first missionary journey. It was customary for the Jews to gather in a synagogue to read from the law and the prophets, meaning from the Old Testament. Having done that, the Bible says the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to Barnabas and Paul to ask if they had a word of encouragement for everyone gathered in the synagogue. Likely this happened because Paul was a rabbi, and so he gladly agreed. And in verses 16 through 25, which is the first half of his word of encouragement, he emphasized the goodness of God. And the goodness of God was seen primarily in God's electing love, his sovereign power, his perfect patience, and his unending faithfulness, as we saw last week. Clearly, for the Apostle Paul, God is the source of our encouragement, not our circumstances. God is always the source of our encouragement. Moreover, Paul gleaned all this encouragement from the Old Testament history. And this is very consistent with what Paul himself taught in Romans 15, verse 4, where Paul said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
And so it was only fitting that he should go to Old Testament history to draw great encouragement for us. But when we arrived at verse 24, we saw Paul speaking of the one prophet who came to prepare the way of the Lord, namely John the Baptist. I love that. John the Baptist. Nothing against my Presbyterian brothers, but he was John the Baptist. Okay, let's just that sink in. And so John the Baptist, in that sense, was like a runner in a relay race. He was the one receiving the baton of the Old Testament prophecy, taking it with him into the waters of the baptism of repentance, and then handing it over to the last runner, the finisher, the Lord Jesus himself, in whom the entire Old Testament finds its very substance. Now this morning, we have three words of encouragement. Once again, last week, it was God is good. This morning, the words of encouragement are also three. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Three words that change absolutely everything. Three words that change absolutely everything, both now and for all eternity. Now, let us see why. There are essentially three parts to Paul's argument for the lordship of Jesus this morning. Remember that he's speaking to a Jewish audience inside a Jewish synagogue. Therefore, Paul is eager to prove one thing, the identity of the Messiah, the identity of the Messiah. And so Paul will encourage us by providing three central pieces of evidence that Jesus is indeed the Lord, the Messiah announced in the Old Testament. And after Paul is done with his word of encouragement, he will offer an urgent word of warning to which all of us must pay close attention. So where do we begin? Paul was very, very fond of providing everything or proving everything from the perspective of what we today call biblical theology, or more specifically, covenant theology. And this, more than anything else, proves the unity, the perfect unity of Scripture. We have two testaments, one central theme. Two testaments, one central theme. Therefore, Paul has no problem going back to Abraham to speak about Jesus. Why? Because there is unity. So here's the first piece of evidence. Jesus was anticipated through covenants. Jesus was anticipated through covenants. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of who? Abraham. What does Abraham have to do with anything of this? Well, let's see. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us us has been sent the message of this salvation. It is not uncommon for the apostles to speak of Abraham or the patriarchs in connection to Jesus. They had no problem going into Old Testament history in order to explain New Testament realities. Why? Get this. Think about this. Because the patriarchs exist for the sake of Jesus. Let that sink in. In fact, the entire Old Testament, with all its history, was put in motion by God in order to bring about the birth of Jesus. Let that sink in. In fact, the whole universe, the whole universe exists for the sake of this one person, the Lord Jesus. Listen to Colossians 1.16 where the Apostle Paul says this, For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. Let that sink in. All things were created for that man. This is truly a mind-bending truth. Think about it. It is possible that for a coming king, a palace might be built so that he can live in it. And that would be quite amazing. Imagine having an entire palace built just because you are on your way. Jesus had the entire universe created, built so that he could enter into it. Creation was created so that Jesus could be known and worshipped. Everything was made through him, meaning he was instrumental in the creation of all things, but also everything was made for him, meaning, listen, his pleasure was the reason for the existence of all things. His pleasure was the reason for the existence of all things, and you thought you were special. That's cute. Abraham was called out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan along with his family. And God made a covenant with him so that out of his family a nation could be established. And that nation was established so that out of that nation a king would come. And so he did. So Paul is basically saying this. We have known of this coming salvation for a while. Ever since Abraham was called, it was all about a man. We could put it like this. Abraham was set apart for the very purpose of bringing the Messiah into the world. So Paul says, if you belong to the family of Abraham, or if you fear God, meaning if you are a Gentile who has believed in the God of the Jews, then listen up. Here's the whole point of the whole thing. Salvation is here. The covenant with Abraham has fulfilled its purpose. The covenant with Abraham has fulfilled its purpose. What, what is that? Well, the blessing of Abraham has been unleashed into all the worlds. Remember what God said to Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, now that, that is a reality. It is on its way. What is the encouragement for us? Well, let me just say a few things. History has not and will not lose its purpose. Let us be careful, brothers and sisters, not to fall into a naturalistic view of the world and of human history in which things just happen. That is not at all the Christian view of history, brothers and sisters. In, Paul, in verse 26, Paul reaches into an, the ancient past of Abraham and says, we are here speaking with you about how that ancient history has reached into our present. And guess what? That's what we do every Sunday. Is that not the case? That's what I'm doing right now. We do it every Sunday. Ancient history has reached into our 21st century present. Why? Because history is purposeful. It seems painfully random at times, doesn't it? History feels, seems painfully random at times. It even feels painfully random, especially when we are at the center of the pain due to unforeseen circumstances of life. But brothers and sisters, don't make the mistake of thinking it is all random because it never is. History, including yours, including your very history, has a purpose so be encouraged, and this purpose centers around one man and one event, to which we now turn in verses 27 through 29. Jesus was executed according to plan. Jesus was executed according to plan. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers 
because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul was very bold in what he's saying right here. Did you notice? Now remember the context. Go back to verse 14. Second half of verse 14. And on a Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. Verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue. Do you see the connection? Did you see the the boldness of Paul? It reminded me of Nathan when he went to David and told him the story of the unjust man. Remember that story? David was all fine with the story until Nathan said, David, that's just a parable to soften the blow. But I'm talking about you. You are the main character of the story. You are the unjust man, Paul. I mean, David, Paul is doing something very similar here. The audience was probably receiving the message relatively well, maybe even with a smile on their faces up to verse 27, at which point the smile likely became a frown. Paul is basically saying this, I will tell you the story of a people who did something terrible. These people gather in synagogues, read the law and the prophets every Sabbath, and have rulers. Do you know anybody like that? Nothing gets the attention of people like when you personalize a story. And that is precisely what Paul does. Now it is personal. People just like you, says Paul, misunderstood what they have been reading for a long time because what they read for a long time, namely the law and the prophets, the Old Testament was about the Messiah. And when he actually showed up, they killed him. But the point Paul is making is quite astonishing. Jesus was executed by the Jews living in Jerusalem with the help of the Roman governor, Pilate, in order to fulfill the plan. Isn't that amazing? Notice that Paul says, by condemning Jesus and by executing Jesus, they actually fulfilled what was written of him. In other words, the death of Jesus was according to plan. As Isaiah, prophet Isaiah said 700 years before the coming of Jesus, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son, Isaiah 53, 10. How? By the instrumentality of Jewish hatred and Roman cruelty. Amazing, brothers and sisters. Jesus was executed according to plan at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, but ultimately it was the hand of God himself who put Jesus on the cross. And this, my friends, is the very center point of all of human history. For in the death of Jesus, the central problem of humanity was solved definitively. On the cross, sin was dealt a lethal blow. By the death of Jesus, he destroyed the works of the devil, thus crushing the serpent's head. The very thing that was promised by God to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.15. Now, a few moments ago, a few moments ago, I made a reference to how history both global and personal, can at times seem or feel painfully random. 
especially when we are the ones experiencing the pain due to seemingly random circumstances. Some people have sought to capitalize on this issue and make it the very basis of their attacks upon Christianity. It goes something like this. Pay attention. If God is good, he doesn't want pain and suffering in the world. Yet pain and suffering exist. Therefore, God is not good. If God is all-powerful, he could remove all pain and suffering. Yet pain and suffering exist. Therefore, he is impotent. This is classically known as the problem of evil or the problem of pain and suffering. And it is normally used as the gotcha moment against Christians. The point being that a good and all-powerful God cannot coexist with the undeniable realities of pain and suffering in the world. Therefore, God doesn't exist because pain and suffering do exist. How do we answer that? Well, the problem with the problem of pain and suffering as used against Christianity is that it fails to account for the fact that Christianity has never sought to hide from the problem of pain and suffering. Not at all. In fact, if verses 27 through 29 teaches anything, is that the very opposite is true. At the very heart of Christianity, there is pain and suffering. At the very heart of Christianity, there is pain and suffering because at the heart of Christianity, there is a cross and a man on it, dying, alone, suffering agony, not only from coming from his physical pain, which was excruciating, and from the injustice committing against him by evil men, as verse 28 makes clear, but more severely still, the pain of bearing the sins of the world and receiving upon himself the wrath of God. On that cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's fury against our sin. For Christianity, pain and suffering are not problems. For in the gospel, the very heart of the gospel, we learn that in the very pain and the suffering and death of Jesus, we have hope. Without that pain, without that suffering, without that death, there is no hope. The pain, the suffering, and the death of Jesus is the heart of our hope. We're not trying to hide from the problem of pain and suffering. It is at the heart of what we say. Interestingly, I found it interesting. I don't know if you will, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I recently watched the story of a young lady who died at the age of 21 from an illness. She made a YouTube channel in which she recorded her, her entire ordeal. She made it very public, but also very personal. People from all over the world said that they found hope in her story which is very interesting because her story was indeed a story of pain, suffering, and ultimately death. Death. One man even mentioned how he had been thinking about taking his own life until he found her videos, and they, those videos gave him hope. How interesting. Who would have thought people finding hope in someone else's pain, suffering, and death. Allow me to ask one question. How can anyone blame the Christian message then? 
how can anyone blame the Christian message then? Isn't the very gospel a call to believe and place your entire hope in a man who suffered and died at the hands of the Jews and under Pontius Pilate? The cross of Christ shows us that God submitted himself to our sorrows, our pains, and our sufferings, and even our death, because this meant salvation for us. Because the wages of sin is what? Death and died is what Jesus did and for our sins. But the difference is that the story of Jesus did not end there. You see, the story of that young lady resonates with many because it reminds us of our human solidarity. And what is that? Our own mortality and our vulnerability to suffering and death. We can connect with that. But unfortunately, human solidarity has a very limited effect because human solidarity remains confined to human experience. In other words, the hope people received from that young lady's suffering and death was a hope that cannot transcend death itself. It is a hope trapped in the coffin. My friends, what we need is a hope that can destroy the coffin. And to this hope we now turn as we give our attention to verses 30 through 37. Brothers and sisters, behold your hope. Jesus was raised by divine power. Jesus was raised by divine power. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The tomb was left empty. The coffin was destroyed. Now, the death of Jesus was substitutionary, meaning he died in the place of sinners. The wages of our sins, what our sins deserve as payment, namely death, Jesus paid because he died. He suffered and died for us. What you and I deserve, Jesus received in his own human body on the cross. But God, the Bible says, raised him, meaning his actual human body was raised. His human body was raised. Death was reversed to the degree that his body stood up and walked out of the tomb completely renewed. Now, in what follows, Paul will explain why Jesus was raised. And in here, Paul will limit himself to three reasons. Why was Jesus raised? Number one, to rule the nations. To rule the nations. Verses 32 and 33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Why don't you do me a a favor, turn to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. It's only 1120. We We have a lot of time. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. If you're worried, that's your problem. I'm not worried. Psalm 2. Now, notice that there is something very interesting that is said in Psalm 2, verse 7, that Paul also quotes in Acts 13, verse 33. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does it mean when it says, today I have begotten you? Well, this is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, meaning it talks about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, prophetically explains both the humiliation and the exaltation of God's then coming Messiah. 
Now, the first half of Psalm 2 is all about the humiliation of the anointed. Uh, We know from Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28, that at least, listen to this, at least the first half of Psalm 2 was already fulfilled in history in the plot to kill and in the actual killing of Jesus, which came from both Jews and the Romans. Remember how how Psalm 2 begins? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That already happened with the Jews and Pontius Pilate from the Roman government coming together against the Lord Jesus. And what were they saying? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, what did the, Jew, the Jews and the Romans say to Jesus? We don't want your ruling over us. We don't want you as king. We're going to kill you. According to Acts chapter 4, that already happened in history, first century Palestine. And he was executed, as we already saw. But that's not the end of Psalm 2. There's a second half to Psalm 2. After the rejection of the Messiah, his exaltation was prophesied. And Psalm 2, verse 7, belongs to the section pertaining to that exaltation. Here's the fuller context. I'm going to read verse 7 and 8. I will tell of the degree. The Lord said to me, this is a conversation between, we know now, Between who? The Father and the Son. David was given a vision into this conversation. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, verse 8, and I will make the what? The nations your heritage and the what? Ends of the earth. Notice that. Nations and ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? As your possession. I believe according to Acts 13, verse 33, the resurrection of Jesus was the moment in which the Father vindicated the name of his Son as the rightful ruler of the world to whom a people has been given as his inheritance. And by the way, that's what we are. We think about this. I want you to think about yourself, your life, your Christian life. You know what you are? Well, I'm a Christian, of course, but let me, let me explain what that means. You are, you are a gift from the Son, from the Father to the Son. That's what you are. If you're a Christian, you are a part of a massive, universal, global gift that the Father has promised to give the Son, and He's already given it to them. He's bringing an entire people who will fall before Him and worship His name. And you belong to that people. The words, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I believe those are a reference to Jesus being reborn from what? From the dead. Jesus being reborn from the dead. After all, Colossians 1.18 says that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead, was begotten or reborn as the indestructible prophet, priest, and king, who, unlike all other kings, possesses universal authority. The nations and the ends of the earth are his. What king can say that? Name me one. One king in any any country of the world. 
Now there's only one. Therefore, Jesus could say, go and make disciples of what? Some nations? No, he said all nations. What did the Father promise the Son? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And then Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what did the Father promise the anointed in Psalm 2? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. He is the one who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That's Paul quoting Isaiah in Romans 15, 12. So he was raised, first of all, to rule the nations. That's exciting. It's very exciting. Number two, second reason. He was raised to live forever. To live forever, verses 34 through 37. As for the fact that he raised him, meaning the father raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. There's much, much rich, rich theology here, but if we ever want to finish the book of Acts, I have to limit myself to just a few things. We could spend weeks here. Um, a few comments. Paul speaks of David in a twofold way, historically and prophetically. Historically speaking, David was given a holy and sure blessing. In what sense? Well, David did achieve peace in his earthly kingdom, as 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 makes very clear. But the true blessing promised to David transcended David himself, for the ultimate promise was that of an eternal kingdom. Therefore, Paul speaks of David also prophetically as well as a, as a type of the one who was to come. And Paul does so by quoting Isaiah 55 verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. So these words were spoken historically from God to David, but ultimately from the Father to the Son, the Lord Jesus. So these words were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as he's the one whose kingdom knows no end. Why is it that Christ's kingdom knows no end and is eternal? Because he rose from the dead. David died and his body saw corruption, meaning it decomposed. His body decomposed. Jesus also died, but before there was any decomposition, he rose from the dead. Listen, this is a direct reference to the absolute physicality of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the one with no beginning and no end, has entered human life as a human. He lived as a human, and as a human, he died on the cross, and as a human, he left the tomb empty. As a human, as a human, his physical body will never see corruption. It will never decompose. Death has no dominion over him. His human body, his human body is eternal. 
My friends, Jesus is no ghost. Jesus is no ghost. He is a man, the God-man, and he sat at the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we have a king of flesh and bone who stands in the heavens, to whom all dominion from sea to sea has been given to him, and he will never die again. And number three, he was raised from the dead to forgive sins, to forgive sins. Verses 38 through 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word therefore in verse 38 is important because it tells us that Jesus can forgive sins because of two things, right? Because he died and because he rose again. A living Jesus who didn't die cannot save us. And a dead Jesus who didn't rise again cannot save us either. We need both, Christ crucified for our sins and Christ risen for our justification. That Christ, brothers and sisters, dead and risen, is the one through whom forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in all the world. The law of Moses, of course, is effective in showing you your sins, but it is impotent to deliver you from your sins. It is like the speed limit sign, right? Very, very basic illustration, but it is like the speed limit sign. The speed limit sign can show you the speed limit, but it cannot keep you from speeding. And most of you know what that feels like. Notice that I said most of you. It cannot keep you from speeding. But the speed limit sign does make transgression possible, doesn't it? The only way for 50 miles per hour to be a transgression is if the law tells you that the speed limit is 45 miles per hour. Likewise, the law of Moses shows us the many ways in which we have offended God's holiness, and that is the definition of sin. It is transgression of the law, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Hence, the law of God is good, it is holy, and it is righteous, but it cannot offer you freedom from sin. In fact, it traps you in your sin because it exposes your sin over and over and over again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under what? The law to redeem, to buy back, to save those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's amazing. The eternal, uncreated son of God took on human flesh to live under the law in perfect fulfillment of it, went to the cross and died under the curse of it and rose again as the new Adam. You see, Jesus is God coming down, embracing humanity and then taking that humanity back to God. That's what Jesus is. Because he's up there in the presence of God, we know we will. As humans, as humans, redeemed by Christ. Humanity in Christ has been redeemed, brought back to God in Christ Jesus, an actual human being who walked, died, and rose again. For whom? For those who believe. And this brings us to the last point. Therefore, heed the warning. Heed the warning. Verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, 
lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Beware. Beware, my friend. Beware, whoever you are, whatever your name, rich, poor, male, female. Should you reject should you reject the Lord Jesus and the salvation he offers through his cross and his empty tomb, then you are rejecting the work of God himself. If you reject Jesus, you are left hopeless. So first, let me finish with four encouragements. First, be encouraged this morning to believe in the name of Jesus. I want to encourage you to believe in the name of Jesus. Think about it. Even if you call yourself an atheist, I want to I challenge you. You know that sin exists. You know that sin exists. You know it in your own life, and you know it even more so in the life of others because their sin bothers you more than yours. That's just the way it works. But you know sin exists. You know it. You can deny it. Sin undoubtedly is the most self-evident reality in the entire human experience. So the question is, if you don't believe in Jesus, knowing that the fact that you believe in sin, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you reject him, then where will you place your hope for the forgiveness of those sins that you know are true, you know are real? There is no other hope. Can't come up with it. There is no other hope. You're left hopeless. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Second, be encouraged to rest in God's sovereign plan. And by the way, the sovereignty of God will be the theme of our next sermon next, next Sunday as we consider predestination. If the story of Jesus living, dying, and rising again teaches us anything, is that God is in control of all things, all history, including your own history. Let this passage of Scripture encourage you to rest in His sovereign plan for you, God is God indeed. Number three, be encouraged to walk in obedient faith. Be encouraged to walk in obedient faith. Jesus is Lord. The Christian life, the Christian life is the never-ending process of understanding what those three words actually mean. So here's my invitation. Go home and continue to learn what that means, that Jesus is Lord. And number four, be encouraged to rejoice in the glory of the Lord Jesus. One day in the past, for some of you this is a very long past, for others not very long. One day in the past you were conceived, you were conceived in your mother's womb, and subsequently you were born. All of this took place in a certain place, at a certain time, under certain circumstances. In those circumstances, you grew up, and now you're here. Now you're here. Let me see if I can set this in contrast to a philosophy of life that I heard from the mouth of a Muslim scholar. He spoke of the quote-unquote throneness, throneness of life. And the illustration he used was as follows. Imagine you go to sleep and suddenly you wake up on a ship. 
full of people doing all sorts of, sorts of things, eating, drinking, laugh, laughing, talking, etc. What would be the question in your mind, he asked. And the question he asked was, well, if, if that were to happen to me, I would ask, where am I? Why am I here and where am I going? This, he said, is life. This is life, he said. You were thrown. That's the thrownness of life. You were thrown into it. You showed up somewhere. You didn't decide what that was. You just showed up somewhere. You were thrown into it. You have to deal with it, whatever that is. But I'm here to tell you that the word thrownness does not do justice to the truth. It does not do justice to the truth. You were not thrown into life randomly. You are here for one main reason, and it is this. You were formed in your mother's womb. You were born, you are placed under your specific circumstances so that you might know him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man. That's why you're here. That's why you are here. All things, remember Colossians, all things were made through him and for him. That includes you along with everything about you. You were made, everything about you, your, your good and the bad. Everything was made for Christ. And this is why you are in the world, so that you may know him. That's your purpose. That's why you were born. That's why you enjoy life and suffer all of it holds together in this one man, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Your very conception was for the sake of Jesus. So no, you were not thrown into life. The invitation this morning is look to the one who died and rose again. He is your life. There is no other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this once again, this reminder of uh, why we're here and the centrality of the Lord Jesus. If we could only grasp just a little bit of what it means that in him all things hold together. And so I pray for hope. I pray for the hope that many of my brothers and sisters in this room and maybe watching online are craving for. A hope that is unmovable unchangeable. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit and your preached Word, you will seal in our minds that this hope has a name, and it is God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, who walked in this life with a perfect life, who died under the wrath, your wrath, O Lord, because of our sin, who was placed in a tomb only to destroy it. And then he ascended into heaven, and now he is the ruler of the nations. He is the one who will never die, and he is the one who forgives sins. And so I pray, Father, that the warning that we just heard will go forth into our ears and our hearts and our minds, and that if there is anybody in here who is resisting your call, that you will change their hearts and bring them to faith in the one who can save them. And may all things be done to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.